You're listening to Inward with Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld on the Shefa Podcast Network. Join Rabbi Joey as he guides us through the world and major works of Kabbalah, Hasidic masters, and Jewish philosophy, shedding light on the inner life of the soul. Okay, so tonight, Be'ezrus Hashem, we're going to be continuing with our series of shirim on the teachings of Rabbi Nachman of Breslau. And tonight's shir is going to be on the 64th teaching in the first volume of Lukut Maharan. The teaching is titled, Bo El Paro, Come to Paro. And this teaching, when it comes to the teachings of Rabbi Nachman that have influenced me or influenced my way of sharing Torah, teaching Torah, understanding Torah. Torah Boa Paro holds a, a special place in my heart because way before I even knew who Rabbi Nachman was or what Rabbi Nachman was coming to teach us years and years before, this was a teaching that I found myself deeply connected to to the point that it was a teaching that I attempted to learn over and over, way before I understood the significance of the Sefer Lukuta Maharan. And so it's a teaching that I could humbly say that I've learned in my lifetime at least 101 times. But it's also a teaching that still evades my understanding, evades my capacity to fully grasp the teaching. And a teaching that forces you to dance, to, to move with one foot in understanding, with the other foot in a lack of understanding, once again placing the foot on the sturdy ground of understanding, only to recognize that the other foot is once again in the air of misunderstanding. And this dialectical sway, this movement of knowledge and non-knowledge, of grasping the Torah and not grasping the Torah, of understanding the Torah and not understanding the Torah, it has dawned upon me after years of thinking about this Torah, that it is not simply a problem with understanding this Torah, but it's actually a symptom of the Torah itself. That as we're going to see, the teaching Boal Paro never allows you to place two feet sturdily on the ground. It doesn't allow the individual to ever place themselves on the sturdy ground of pure understanding, because this is a teaching that comes to obliterate the capacity of true understanding. It's a teaching, ultimately, that comes to teach us about emuna. Like I said in the beginning of the shiram on Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, and as I'm going to reiterate tonight and reestablish for myself tonight, part of the process of moving through and beyond the teachings of Ravichemeyer Morgenstern and all of the tzaddikim who we've taught that preceded him, into the teachings of Rabbi Nachman, is not simply a movement in content, but it's a movement in form. Meaning to say that with the teachings of Rabbi Nachman, what I'm, I'm attempting to do for myself, most importantly, and for anybody who's willing to eavesdrop or listen, is to move from a space that highlights 
the negative, not negative in the psychological sense, but negative in the ontological sense, finding God in absence, etc. And move from that place into a place of the positive to, to find more of an affirmative stance on what it means to be a Jew in a world that is difficult. And it's really only with the teachings of Ravichemeyer Morgenstern Schlitta that we were capable of bridging that world from the negative into the positive, from the pessimistic into the affirmative. And Bezras Hashem Ravichemeyer Morgenstern will continue to be a bridge for us as we continue to teach. But I want to reaffirm that, especially on Rosh Chedesh Adar, that ultimately this teaching is coming to teach about Emuna. Torah Samach Dalid has been so discussed and so written upon and so shared in the mouths of so many individuals who find themselves drawn to the teachings of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. Kulam Kedoshim, they're all holy, they're all desirable, they're all trying to express the truth of their own hearts. But ultimately, this is a teaching that titters on the edge of nihilism, that titters on the edge of meaninglessness, that titters on the edge of the obliteration and the annihilation of knowledge. And what I want to show through my own humble reading, and I stress the word humble, because humility is the only way to properly interpret this Torah, spend five minutes correcting the statement I just made, but I'm not going to. That my reading of this Torah is the opposite of nihilistic. It's the opposite of pessimistic. It's an affirmative Torah. It's a Torah that teaches us that ultimately, no matter what happens in a person's life, a person can rest assured and support themselves upon the edifice and, and, and the reality of emuna, of faith. That that goes beyond knowledge. So the dancing that takes place as a result of this Torah between knowledge and non-knowledge, understanding and not understanding, where at best a person can only place one foot upon the ground with the other dangling upon the abyss, ultimately this dance gives birth to the silent nigun, to the silent song, to the silent melody of faith, of emunah, and that this teaching is simply coming to state the ultimate presence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It has nothing to say about the absence of God, God forbid, or the potential of the absence of God, which so many people want to find in this teaching, which is why I've titled this sheer as the impossibility of absence. And with that, we're going to begin slowly but surely to enter into the teaching of Rabbi Nachman in Bayel Paro. Now, in contradistinction to the previous teachings that we've been discussing, there's very little historical context given behind this Torah. It could be that we know the year that it was given over, but it's not something that I remember at this moment. Nevertheless, what is clear is that there's no context, there's no discussion that Rabbi gives us access to, to hint to us regarding when or why Rabbi Nachman started teaching this. But for our sake, we have to look at the Dibra Maskil, the Psukim of Boyel Paro. Vayomer Hashem al Moshe Boyel Paro. That Hashem said to Moshe, Come to Paro. Rabbi Nachman doesn't state this explicitly, nor does Rabbi Nassan. But the Zayra Kadosh in Parsha's Boy asks a very significant question Boyel Paro, come to Paro. Lechel Paro mi Boyle. It should say, 
walk towards Paro. Go into the palace of Paro. Why does the Pasuk state come to Paro? As if God, so to speak, is speaking from the throne of Paro, beckoning Moshe Rabbeinu to come closer to God in the house of Paro, as if saying, come towards me in the house of Paro. The Zohar says it should say, go to Paro. Because Paro, as we know, and as we're going to see, is symbolic of all that is negative, of all that is absent, of all that is dark, of all that is limited, of all that is mugval. So how could it be, the Zohar asks, how could it be that Hashem's voice echoes from the throne of Paro itself and says, come forward to me? How could it be that the voice of Hashem emerges out of the palace of impurity of Paro? And the Zohar goes on and says that this secret, this sugya of the voice of HaKadosh Baruch Hu coming out of the throne of Paro is a sugya that Moshe Rabbeinu was terrified of. That Moshe dachil minei. That Moshe Rabbeinu was terrified of entering into the palaces of impurity, entering into the palace of difficulty, of negativity, into the void, so to speak. And the Zohar continues that eventually Hashem, Kavyachal, was able to convince Moshe to move forward. Come find my voice that emerges from within the house of Paro. Come find my voice, the voice of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that emerges not from Harsinai, not from Goshen, the place of Kedusha, not from a place of light, but rather come find me specifically within the heart of darkness. Come find me within the palace and the throne and the inner chambers of Paro himself. And this secret, the Zohar says, is the secret of the Tanin Hagadol, of the great serpent, of the Leviathan. Bezus Hashem, one day we should be zoichet to give shirim on the Leviathan through the teachings of the Vilmagon and his students. But suffice it to say that the Leviathan and the Nachash Bereach, this Tanin Hagadol that Paro represents, is the question of evil in the world, is the question of darkness and absence of God in the world that Paro represents the reality or the possible reality of God's occlusion in the world, of the hiddenness of God in the world, the hiddenness of God from our own particular experiences and the hiddenness of God from the historical landscape of history. And when the Zayar Kadush says that Hashem announces, Boy El Paro, come to me in the house of Paro, what HaKadosh Baruch Hu is announcing and what the Zayar Kadush and what Pnimiya Satora is coming to teach is that even the sugya of Paro, even the sugya of darkness and absence and all of the unanswerable questions that assault the Jewish mind as it attempts to regain the weakened and vulnerable faith that it so desperately needs at this moment in history, it is specifically there that Hashem says, guess what? That voice, that echo is also me. I'm also there. That darkness is also me. That darkness is not something separate from me. That darkness is not something apart from me. That darkness and that absence is not something that is outside of my control. But it's all me. It's only me. It's only HaKadosh Baruch Hu. 
even that which appears to be the opposite of HaKadosh Baruch Hu Kavyachol, is in truth revealed to be an expression of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That Boyel Paro, come forth to Paro. Instead of saying, walk towards Paro, Hashem's announcement, come to me, here in the house of Paro, is ultimately the entire essence of this teaching contained in the Dibra Maskil. That Boyel Paro teaches us that the absence of God is simply an expression of God in an alternative way that we're not used to. And that the absence of God and the concealment of God, so to speak, is not an actual absence and it's not an actual concealment, but rather it's an expression of godliness in a new way. A new way that allows us to double and multiply the capacity of godliness in the world. Now, immediately, before starting to teach this Torah, it's important that we understand that Rabbi Nassim had a very specific way of learning this Torah. When a person studies the teachings of the Arizal, the Sugyos of Tzimtzum, the initial contraction or limitation that God, so to speak, needed to impose upon himself for the sake of creating a space other than godliness that could become reality as we know it, or the cataclysm of Shira Sakelim, the typical assumption is that Kabbalah is coming to teach about the framework of the worlds, the infrastructure of existence, the ontology of existence, as if it's describing something that took place once upon a time and that exists sedimented into history and into reality as a one-time event that needs to be understood. And therefore, any discussion about Simpson or Shvira of contraction or shattering is simply a question of madahave of what was. How do we properly understand something that took place in the past as a one-time event? Rabbi Nassim immediately expresses in Likutei Alachos, in Hilchos Pikadoin, at the end of Halacha Gimel, where he describes the difference between a Shomer Chinam and a Shomer Sachar. Rabbi Nassim states explicitly in the middle of Likutei Alachos and at the end, that everything that is stated in the writings of the Arizal, and especially in Rabbi Nachman's interpretations of the writing of the Arizal, are not simply universal or cosmic concepts, but these are ideas that are significant on a psychological and epistemological level on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis. That Simsum, the Kav, the Shvira, Olam HaTikun, Binyan HaPartzufim, Oilam HaAtzilus, Oilamos Bria Yitzira and Asiya, the movement from the bottom of Atsiya back through the worlds of Yetzia, Brira, up to Atsilus, up to Adam Kadmon. All of those concepts, things that Bezras Hashem will be able to teach in the future, are simply expressive of the psychological movements that an individual Jew experiences in a moment-to-moment, day-to-day basis. So the ideas described tonight with regards to absence and presence and breaking and fixing are not simply abstract philosophical notions that abide within the abstract realm of contemplating what took place in the past, but they are ideas that penetrate deeply into the lived experience of each and every human being, whether or not they know the terms or not. 
We all experience it. The simple question in terms of knowledge is whether we know the terms to describe it. But we all experience this unconsciously or consciously. And this hakdama that Rabbi Nassim makes and that Rav Avram ben Rav Nachman and that Rav Ichimai Morgenstern Shlita makes so clearly takes Torah Samech Dalid from this ontological, abstract, philosophical exploration, which in and of itself deserves an infinite amount of writing and discussion, and transforms it into an existentially necessary discussion in the moment-to-moment value of what it means to be a Jew who lives in the world. Rabbi Nachman begins and he says, echoing the words of the Ariza, not simply echoing the words of the Arizal, but adding his interpretation to the words of the Arizal. That HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted to create a world. Why did HaKadosh Baruch Hu want to create a world, Kavyachol? And this Kavyachol, for anyone who's been listening to me, is so fundamental. But why did Hashem want to create the world, Kavyachol? Because Hashem, Kavyachol, has the capacity to be a merachim to be compassionate, to have mercy. There was no one to have mercy on when it was only HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Therefore, in order for Hashem to reveal His mercy, in order for God to reveal His capacity towards compassion, towards empathy or sympathy, Hashem, so to speak, needed to constrict himself, contain himself, limit himself, contract himself, be mitzamsem himself, remove himself, so that there can be a space other than God, wherein Hashem could then express his Rachmanus. Or as Rabbi Nachman says, Hashem has this capacity, so to speak, from our perspective, of wanting to be sympathetic and empathic to the human experience. But if God is all annihilating and all saturating, there's no room for human beings to need compassion or to need empathy and sympathy. Therefore, God, so to speak, contracts himself in order to reveal this potential within himself of compassion, sympathy, and empathy. Now this sugya, what Rabbi Nachman refers to as Rachmanus, is no different than what we've discussed in the writings of the Leshem and Rav Kook and Rabbeinu Azriel of Gerona, that the infinite has the capacity towards manifesting an imperfection. Because without manifesting an imperfection, the infinite is limited. And therefore, God, so to speak, who is infinite in all matters of infinity, needed to express himself in finitude that the Bilti Gvul, that the unlimited, needed to show its capacity to reveal itself within limitation. Rabbi Nachman is working on the same lines, the same fracture of theology. Rabbi Nachman expresses it more in an emotional, existential way, that Hashem wants to have compassion. Rachmanus is very different than Chesed. Chesed is pure giving. It's pure love. It's pure light. Rachmanus, on the other hand, Rahmanus is undeserved. Rahmanus on another person is when that person in truth exhibits moods or symptoms of difficulty. This person doesn't deserve my chesed. The world doesn't deserve God's chesed. But compassion, 
to see the humanity of another person, to be melamed schus on somebody else, to perhaps conceive of the possibility that somebody else's life circumstances have influenced their behaviors to the point that their negative behaviors no longer make them liable. And in fact, they force us to have compassion on them. That is what Rachmanus is. Hashem wants to be Merachim. Hashem wants to have compassion on the Jewish people, on the world. Hashem wants to give us hope when there is re- no reason for hope. And therefore, Hashem had to contract himself so that there would be others who could receive his compassion, receive his sympathy and empathy, receive the gift that HaKadosh Baruch Hu offers us when he says that in spite of the fact that you're so broken, in spite of the fact that you're so far, I will nevertheless look at your circumstances. I will look at your origins. I will look at the fact that this is not your fault and I will gift you the gift of mercy and compassion. That is what Hashem wants to reveal to the world. Hashem wants to give us the ability to find schus even when we don't deserve schus. The matnas chinam. And so HaKadosh Baruch Hu had to be matzamsim himself. Hashem had to constrict himself one of the greatest novelties of the Arizal. And here Rabbi Nachman enters directly in to the paradox of Tzimtzum, of what it means to state that God, so to speak, needed to contract himself or remove himself. Because Rabbi Nachman says as follows. Rabbi Nachman says, in order for there to be the concept of creation that is other than God or separate than God, Ontologically speaking, there needs to be a removal of godliness so that something other than God can exist. And therefore, the symptom must be something actual. It must be something literal. But, Rabbi Nachman says, it's impossible for us to conceive of the fact that Hashem is actually absent from something. Why? Because there is nothing that exists in existence without the animating and annihilating light of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Now, this concept of the annihilating light of HaKadosh Baruch Hu being present in every point of existence is not something rational. No rational argument will convince somebody of this. There's no measure of reasoning that can force a person to believe that it is rationally true that Hashem and God is present in every moment of existence. I want to just make a comment on what I just said. I said Hashem and God. I'm not referring God forbid to two separate entities. Chas v'shalom. It was just two different Lashonos that I chose to use. But based on the intuition, the holy intuition of each and every one of us, who live by the faith of our fathers and our forefathers and the fathers of our forefathers, who have given their lives for the sake of this faith, who have died for the sake of this faith, who have been destroyed for the sake of this faith. We know deep within the cellular makeup of our beings that there can be no existence devoid of God, that ein oid milvado, that even when it appears rationally to be that it is milvado, that it is opposite and against the existence of God, 
Nevertheless, the Mesiris Nefesh of the Jewish people from generation to generation, Bifrat in our time, Bifrat in the world that we live in, in the context that we live in, in the shadow of that which happened that we live in, we know intuitively, deep down, beyond any rational questioning, that God's annihilating existence abides everywhere, even in the lowest of places, in the lowest level of the lowest places. So we're faced with a paradox of terms. On the one hand, for the sake of existence, God needed to remove himself and contract himself and remove himself and that is absolutely necessary for the sake of something other than godliness. But on the other hand, in the very same moment, in the very same breath, we're forced through the intuitive faith of our souls, the unconscious drive that we don't have the power to stop, to acknowledge the very fundamental fact that Hashem is present everywhere even in the areas where he appears absent. So Rabbi Nachman points out the paradox inherent in the concept of Tzimtzum, that on the one hand, God needed to remove himself, so to speak, in order to create the other than God. But on the other hand, there is nothing other than God, even when it appears in capital O, other than it, otherness. And this paradox is what frames the entirety of Torah Samach Rabbi Nachman continues and he says, for the sake of the tzimtzum, for the sake of creating a space other than God, Hashem needed to create the halal hapanoi, the void, a space absent, an absent space, the presence of nothingness, pure nothingness wherein God's presence is not present. But on the other hand, it's abundantly clear to us that that absence of godliness is an impossibility. So Rabbi Nachman is asking, what is the reality of this halal hapanui? What is the reality of this void? What is the reality of this space in which we find ourselves, where all of existence unfolds? Where on the one hand, it is abundantly clear that God is not present, Yet on the other hand, it is abundantly true that God is present. How does one confront this paradoxical space? And Rabbi Nachman introduces this Torah by stating that the first symptom of in expressing and encountering the Chalal HaPanoi is one of questioning. And Rabbi Nachman says as follows, he says there's two types of questions that a person is going to ask themselves. There are questions that emerge from the Shira Takelim. And again, for the purpose of time, we're not going to be able to get fully into all of these sugyos. But these are ideas that have been discussed in the Shira Man of Kuk, in the Shira Man the Leshem, in the Shira Man the Sviros, in the Shira Man of Morgan, Stern Shlita. Rabbi Nachman makes a distinction between two modes of questioning. There's the question of the Shvira. And the questions of Halal HaPanui. And they're not only questions, but they're forms of heresy. Heresy meaning the denial of godliness, that space wherein we encounter the fact that Hashem is not present in my life at this moment. Now, 
Shvira takelim, the shattering of the vessels, is a symptom of the world. Once Hashem has decided to create the world, once Hashem has attempted to allow the infinite to find itself in finite vessels, so because of some structural or fundamental issue, so there's a shvira, there's a cataclysm. But that cataclysm, that trauma, is not unexpected. It's not impossible to deal with. It takes place within a world that God has created already. The questions that emerge from that place are answerable questions. Those are questions that a person can find an answer to. Those are heresies wherein a person can find a way to answer up those heresies on a rational level. But then there are questions of the halal hapanui. There are questions that emerge from the original void which God, so to speak, needed to create for the sake of something other than God. And those questions are unanswerable. The questions of the halal hapanui have no answer. There are the issues in our life that we experience that there is nothing that can answer them. There are the areas in our life which it is almost impossible for us to conceive of God being present in this moment. When it comes to the questions and the heresy of the halal hapanui, yes, it's difficult to find Hashem, but it's not impossible. There's still a thread of reason that can allow me to rationally find the light of godliness in these experiences these traumas, these breakings, these difficulties. And yeah, in spite of the fact that they're difficult, I'm able to find the light of Hashem there. But the questions of the halal hapanui, the questions of the void, those are unanswerable. Those are the questions that go deeply to the heart of the heart of the individual. The existential questions wherein a person has no ability to believe that Hashem is present in their life. Those dark pockets of what if that a person asks themselves at the heart of their anxiety, that what if that questions all possibility, those are the questions of the halal hapanui. And Rabbi Nachman says that when it comes to the questions of the shvira takelim, when it comes to the antinomies or the traumas that emerge out of the structural breakdown of order that is the shattering of the vessels, so yes, it's difficult to find an answer to those questions, but nevertheless, we can ultimately find an answer. When it comes to the halal hapanui, when it comes to that vacant space, the individual is forced to confront an unanswerable question because the vacant space is predicated on an unanswerable paradox. The vacant space is predicated on the simultaneous truth that Hashem needs to be present because Hashem is present everywhere. But at the same moment, we have to believe in God's absence, because without God's absence, there's no concept of reality. And this paradox that holds itself simultaneously at every moment is unanswerable. Because when it comes to the questions of the halal hapanui, the moment that I allow the presence of God or the absence of God to take precedence one over the other, I am thereby negating the presence of the opposition. So if I claim that no, God is really present in the halal hapanui, so then I'm negating the entire edifice and concept of reality because reality can't exist without the absence of God that is built in the symptom. But if I claim the absence of God, 
and I deny the presence of God even in those dark places, then I'm failing in the fundamental truth that abides within the heart of hearts, which is that Hashem is present even in absence. So that I can't allow either presence or absence, concealment or revelation, to get the upper hand in this contradiction, and therefore it becomes a paradox wherein both are existing simultaneously in an impossible way. Like Rabbi Nachman says, like two oppositional postulates that are forced to exist simultaneously. Because a person is forced, like Rabbi Nachman says, to state something and its opposite, ein and yesh, something and nothingness. When it comes to the tzimtzum, when it comes to the question of the halal hapanui, when it comes to the unanswerable questions, those places in our life where it appears to be utterly impossible to draw the light of godliness into it, we are simultaneously forced to accept and believe in the depths of God's presence. And Rabbi Nachman wants to ask the simple question, really the simple question of how is it that the Jewish individual is able to abide is able to live, is able to survive, is able to function in the face of this deep ontological paradox, the kushios that emerge, the antinomies that emerge from the place where it is so clear that God is absent, yet at the same point it is fundamental to our belief that God is present. How is it that we move past this? How is it that we deal with this? And Ibn Nachman continues. And Ibn Nachman states that these questions of the halal hapanui, this question of how a person engages with the paradoxical space wherein, on the one hand, it is absolutely necessary to proclaim God's presence, and on the other hand, it is absolutely necessary to proclaim God's absence, how is it that the Jewish individual moves through it? Rabbi Nachman states explicitly that this is not just a symptom of Jewish experience. This question of the halal hapanui, these existential antinomies that go directly to the heart of what it means to be a Jew in the world, of what it means to be a, a believing individual in the world, they're not simply symptomatic of belief, but rather they are constitutive of the concept of belief that these questions of the halal hapanui are not something that happened to a person in existence, but rather they are what forms the existence of the individual. Very much like we discussed in the shiram on Ishbitz and Radzin, that these questions are not something that assault a pre-existing subject, but these questions are what constitute the subject themselves. This questioning and this paradox that we are forced to live in that vacillates and dances between absence and presence of God is the very matter that makes up our faith, is the very function that creates the experience of what it means to be a Jew in the world. And Rabbi Nachman says as follows. Rabbi Nachman says that when Hashem created the world, He created two paradoxical modes of divine governance two paradoxical playing fields in which Hashem is present. And again, forgive me 
for jumping from one step to another. This teaching deserves a thousand hours, a thousand days, years to discuss it fully. But to attempt, to attempt, to attempt to share this teaching in an hour, which as I move further and further into this year, it dawns on me the impossibility of the task. But Be'ezus Hashem, what I share, will at least give birth to intimations of this teaching. The question ultimately is, how does a Jewish individual confront the very fact that these questions, the questions that emerged out of the Halal HaPanui, out of that vacant space, which on the one hand must be vacant, on the other hand must be saturated with godly presence, how these questions give birth to the Jewish personality, give birth to the neshama itself. When God contracted himself, it gave birth into two different iterations, two expressions of divine governance. Memale kol almin and sovev kol almin. Now for my sake, I made a chart for this. Memale kol almin is the presence of godliness in this world. It is the center in which all of existence exists. It is the place wherein the divine light descends in order for the worlds of Atsilas, Bria, Yitzir, and Asiya to exist. Soivev Kalamen, the transcendent sense of the surrounding lights, is that which surrounds existence. The annihilating presence of godliness that exists in spite of the worlds of creation. But in order for there to be a difference, in order for there to be a distinction between these levels, in order for there to be a distinction between imminent godliness in this world and transcendent godliness that exists beyond our capacity of knowledge, the infinite, there must be a tzimtzum, there must be a contraction. The contraction gives birth to the halal hapanui, this black circle in this image. The black circle in the image is the vacant space, the empty space that God creates so that there can be a distinction between imminency and transcendence, between the apparent absence of God that allows for human volitionality and human history to unfold in its own, devoid of the annihilating light of God, and the transcendent aspect of godliness, which tells us that we simply exist within the general framework of Hashem's presence. This halal hapanui, this vacant space, as we said, is the place of those constitutive questions. That paradox that is not simply a symptom of what it means to be a Jew, but is rather constitutive of what it means to be a Jew. This halal hapanui is impossible to answer. It's impossible to understand how God could on the one hand remove himself, yet at the same time remain present. How Hashem can be absent, yet nevertheless be present within that absence. And Rabbi Nachman says, the only way to traverse this halal hapanui, the only way to cross over this abyss, this abysmal void that separates the imminence of godliness and the transcendence of godliness, is through Amuna. That if you attempt to cross over these antinomies, these questions, these existential crises that emerge from the halal hapanui, those dark pockets of energy wherein it's almost impossible to conceive of the light of God, yet it's equally impossible to conceive of the, aspect, the absence of God, 
the only way to cross over and traverse that area is through faith, through the super rational act of faith, by casting off all intellect, by throwing away all rationality, by getting rid of all needs to understand how one thing exists when its opposite exists at the same moment, and allow ourselves to live in the space of paradoxical faith, to live with an amuna that allows us to cross over that very narrow bridge, that gesher tsar ma'od ma'od, that no longer needs to abide to the laws of rationality. Because if we attempt to answer these questions rationally, if we attempt to find comfort rationally, we will get stuck in the halal hapanul. We will be swallowed up whole by the traumatic questions that emerge from the impossible void in which we exist. That void that announces simultaneously the absence of God and the presence of God. The only way to traverse it, the only way to move beyond it, while still acknowledging its existence, is through the super-rational space of Amuna. An Amuna that believes in Hashem's presence in spite of all rational signs of absence. An Amuna that is no longer interested in rationality. An Amuna that shatters the capacity of rationality. A faith that says, even though in this moment, historically, personally, individually, it is next to impossible to find the light of God, nevertheless, my conception of finding the light of God has nothing to do with the actual presence of the light of God. This amuna is what allows us to say, even though it appears rationally absolutely dark and absent, nevertheless, through super-rational faith that exceeds rationality, that demands the destruction of rationality, it is possible to live in a space where Hashem is still present. How is Hashem present in the place of his absence? It's not clear. But what's clear is that the individual can live with the comfort that emerges from this concept. That this concept of amuna, this concept of faith within the Chalal HaPonui, this paradoxical belief that God exists even in the absence of his existence, is what gives birth to the Jewish concept of faith. And Rabbi Nachman says, and Rabbi Nassim expresses this in numerous places, that we're referred to as the Ivrian. We're referred to as those people who cross over. And what is it exactly that we cross over? We cross over this very narrow area, this Kalal Hapanui, this absent, impossible, paradoxical space that separates the imminent belief in God and the transcendent presence of God. It is our ability to traverse and move beyond the impossibility of God's presence and to recognize the equal and even more powerful impossibility of God's absence and to move beyond it, to traverse those questions, to acknowledge that, yes, those questions exist. Yes, I can't answer those questions rationally. But nevertheless, my existential abiding faith tells me that those questions ultimately don't even touch the faith that exists beyond rationality. That rationally speaking, a Jewish individual, like Rabbi Nachman says, cannot explain why they believe in God. But nevertheless, the belief in God, the amuna in God, abides even within the depths of heresy. Rabbi Nachman gives an example of what it means 
to answer these paradoxes, these kushios, existentially and historically, that emerge out of the Chalal HaPanui. Rabbi Nachman says that the only way to confront them is through shtika. The only way to experience this space of the Chalal HaPanui, this void, this place where it is apparently absence of godliness, is to be silent. Like Moshe Rabbeinu, who questions the presence of Hashem and the suffering of Rabbi Akiva, when Hashem answers, Be silent. Don't ask these questions, because this is what my wisdom has proclaimed. And Ravram ben Rav Nachman says that this silence is not simply a response to, Rabbi Nach- to, to Moshe Rabbeinu, but it's the very answer itself. That the ability, or our ability, to be silent in the face of these unanswerable questions, to be silent in the face of this ontological halal hapanui, is our ability to move forward with faith, even when faith seems impossible to move forward even in the Palace of Paro, to move forward to recognize that even in the Palace of Paro, the absence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the limit of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Hashem is still abiding and present. Why? Because the absence of God is simply a new iteration of the presence of God. That God's simsum kavyachol, Hashem's concealment, is simply another expression of godliness. Like Rabbi Nachman says, and like we explained in the Shir on the Leshem and Simsum, that the secret of Simsum is like the, sims, the secret of the Arbed, the secret of the Locus, the Levushem Mineyubei, that its concealment emerges from within itself, that the concealment of God is simply a symptom of godliness, so that when a person encounters the absence of God, what they're truly touching is an expression of godliness. It's a revelation of concealment. The symptom is not an act of negation. The symptom is an expression of God's capacity to withhold himself. And this shtika, this silence that we hold in this broken space of our difficult questions wherein there is no answer that can answer them, gives birth to a nigun. It gives birth to a melody. Now, I don't believe that what Rabbi Nachman is describing is different. The silence of the Chalal HaPanui is no different than the Nigun of the Chalal HaPanui. The silence itself is the Nigun. The Nigun of the Jew, the song of the Jew, the song that, that allows the Jew to move beyond this impossible, paradoxical space of the Chalal HaPanui, to cross over it with a very narrow bridge and not to fall into the difficulties of rationality, but rather to rest assured in faith that shatters rationality's limit, is the song of silence. Rav Avram ben Rav Nachman says something incredible. He says something absolutely incredible, and because there's simply too much to say about this Torah, this is where we're going to end. Rav Avram ben Rav Nachman points out that when Rav Nachman is describing the silent nigun that the tzaddik is capable of singing as he confronts the chalal hapanui, as he confronts these paradoxes of what it means to be a Jew with faith, who believes deeply in God's presence even when God's absence seems to be equally valuable, that this nigun is the nigun of az yashir, 
then I will sing. Only in the future will we be able to sing this song, to sing the song of paradoxical faith, even in the space of kefira. To realize that, as Rav Kook says, even kefira is exemplative and expressive of the faith in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And Rav Avram ben Rav Nachman continues and he says, the Nusach of Tefillah, that the Anshei Knesset Hagadola wrote for us in Arvis and in Shacharis, as is brought down in this teaching, which is based on the Pasuk, Mi Kamoicha Be'ilim Hashem, Mi Kamoicha Nedar Bakoidesh, who is great like you with your strength, God? Rav Avram ben Rav Nachman says, you need to look at the interpretation that Chazal gave to this Pasuk in Gitin Daf Vavam and Beis. Because Elim also means mute. And Chazal say, Mi Kamoicha Be'ilim Hashem, who is like you amongst the mute of the world? Hashem, the Goyim, the nation, suffering, the world, concealment, darkness, is swallowing up your presence, is denying your presence, and you're not revealing yourself. You're not showing yourself. That is your strength. Your strength is that you're able to hold back your fury, hold back your anger over your own denial in the mouths of other people. And that strength is indicative of your power. Rav Avram ben Rav Nachman says that this song of Mika Mocha is the song of the Chalal HaPanui. That cry that emerges out of our confrontation with the abyss, out of our confrontation with those unanswerable questions, is in and of itself the shtika and the nigun that carries us over it. The Jewish awareness that Hashem, you have to be present here even though you're so absent, is in and of itself the very song that carries us beyond the absence into a place of remembering presence. Be'ezus Hashem, next week, we're going to learn the final teaching that we're going to be discussing, not the final teaching, the second to final teaching that we're going to be discussing, rather the final teaching that we're going to be discussing in the first volume of Lakuta Maran, which is going to be Torah Reish Pei Beis, 282. The irreducible goodness, the irreducible faith that exists even within the Chalal HaPanui. And Be'ezer Sashem, we're going to find psychologically how we can move beyond the experience of the Halal HaPani within our own lives as well. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Zusha. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.